0: Welcome to Endless, the Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and master of mystery and illusion, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm erstwhile DC
1: Comics editor and princess of chaos, Alisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Season of Mists, Chapter 5, Issue 26 from
0: the Sandman comic book series. Season of Mists, Chapter 5 was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Kelly Jones, inked by George Pratt, colored by Danny Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Alisa <gasps> Quitney, covered by Dave McKean. There is a matter we
1: must discuss you have something i need and i have in my possession something you might want time to wake up in season of mists chapter five Clurican, ambassador of fairy arrives with his sister nula and joins the dream king's other guests in the banqueting hall a pair of mortal dreamers male and female serve the various gods and entities a meal fit for the gods, with each god getting an individualized meal plan, like Noom for gods, while the Norse trickster god Loki observes the moods and habits and clandestine exchanges going on all around him. The Japanese storm god is self-contained as he dines, while Anubis feasts on human hearts, or the dreams of human hearts. Nuala looks worried as she nibbles flower petals, but her brother, the Clurican, is drinking like a young Peter O'Toole at a Hollywood shindig. Churinzen and the Merkin, mother of spiders, are conducting a flirtation that may be peculiar by human standards, but is infinitely more mutual than Thor's heavy-handed attempts at seducing the cat-headed Egyptian goddess who just wants to eat her Memphis roast rat in peace. The Lord of Order, incarnated as a cardboard box, is fed by its servant and the Princess of Chaos, incarnate as a small child, devours ice cream. Only the angels do not eat or flirt or converse. They simply observe from the side. While the mortal dreamers struggle between performing their dream function and understanding where they are and the strange feeling of connection between them, Each of the entities vying for possession of the key to hell approaches Morpheus for a one-on-one to plead their case. But first, there is a little magic show where Cain and Abel show all too clearly how the sausage is made and (laughs) Jorunson discovers that getting lucky with spider ladies just leaves one tied up in knots. Then the meetings commence. Odin One-Eye created the magic version of War Games to understand Ragnarok better. It attracted volunteer fighters such as the Golden Age Sandman, whom we see in a small transparent globe battling a troll. This Sandman contains a fraction of Morpheus's soul. Were Dream to grant Odin Lucifer's domain, Odin would hand the Golden Age Sandman over to him. Where some tell Dream to name his price, others offer information. Bast, for example, knows the location of the missing Endless Brother, and Clurican offers his glamorous sister. Princess Jemmy threatens. Azazel makes what is perhaps the most tempting offer, a bound and weeping Chorensen, who dared challenge the Dream King, and Nada herself, the very reason Dream journeyed into Hell in the first place. The many offers and threats echoing in his ears Morpheus flings the key away only to pick it up again, aware that any choice he makes will have a multitude of undesired consequences.
0: All right. Elisa Quitney, assistant editor. Here we are. Season of Miss Chapter 5 in which a banquet is held and of what comes after concerning diplomacy and bedrooms, blackmail and threats, and an unusual recipe for sausages. And it's the first official issue with Elisa's name on it. Oh, my God. That's so exciting. Elisa, what do you think of this
1: issue? This is an issue where I I cannot be objective. I mean, I... (laughs) Did some work on, I think that the previous two issues. One yeah. was probably mm-hmm. nearly done. I do remember seeing some of the the um, the dead boys, but this is really where I got to see something from scratch. Like like uh, the Princess of Chaos, I got to see how the sausage was made, and <laughs> there was so much magic for me in watching you know words on the script become images in in pencil and then in ink and then you know when once things were lettered and colored it felt like everything came to life in my head so um this is just i you know this is like a a baby that i was midwifing so i can't be objective and say whether or not it's you know objectively the most attractive of babies but that said, I have always been a sucker for, you know, behind the scenes court dramas. Mm-hmm. I think I've, I've mentioned that. And this is just glamour and scheming.
0: And I, I am here for it. That sounds awesome. Yes. One of the phrases that I use quite a lot is that there are certain things that were specifically made to delight me, you know, Mm, and it feels like this may be what this is for you. And also just a coincidence that it happens to be the first one with your name on the masthead, which is kind of awesome. So congratulations. This is very exciting. I'm having so much fun. Um, And I'm not going to lie. I read this and I could not stop all right. So I think that like I am being completely objective because I'm coming to this completely clean. I have no dog in this fight. I was not involved in any of this. Um, but I read this issue and then I was like, I'm not going to just sit here and wait, you know. <laughs> so I've actually read all of Season of Mists now and I'm going to try really, really hard to be clear in my head about what is in this issue and what is in the ones coming up. But it was. I had so many thoughts. It was so fascinating, so interesting. Um I regret nothing. I have to tell you. I try to stay spoil unspoiled, but I regret nothing because it's so so good and I just have to keep my mouth shut about things that don't relate to this issue. I'm going to do my best and if any of you catch me spoiling something, I apologize. It's just about enthusiasm. It's all about enthusiasm. I am Loving Season of Myths so much But let's go ahead and start with the place where we always start Which is Dave McKean's amazing cover art Over this red and purple background with black lines Scratching out kind of geometric patterns We see a steampunky piece of art That looks like it's made from clock pieces to me I don't know There's something else that looks kind of like a shell Kind of like a spiral staircase I'm not really sure Um, And overlaid on that is the outline of the key to hell. Um, I love the steampunky, grungy feel. Again, when I talk about things that are specifically made to delight me, that is absolutely the kind of stuff that I love. I think maybe being a child of the 90s, that grungy kind of feel. I just really, really love that. Um, But I'm I'm not going to lie to you, Lisa. I don't know what this cover means. I don't know what it is. Is it a staircase? Is it a shell? Is it a... I don't know what it is. I love it. Visually, it appeals to me, but I don't understand it.
1: You haven't even mentioned the goldfish.
0: I, did I miss a goldfish? Wait, are we looking at the same cover? Because I saw this No, we might stuff. be. My problem, yes, it has a spirally stuff on it, but my problem is also that um, I am in the middle of a move cross country and I have packed up my book with the cover in it. So I'm looking at it in the Kindle version and it's always slightly different and usually I can't see quite as much detail. So go ahead, talk to me about the goldfish.
1: There, there's a goldfish as well. So I love I, it. I mean, there's a, yeah. you know, I was thinking about Fibonacci curves of the shell that could represent uh, Morpheus's helm or, or the key itself uh, there's something mm-hmm. else with gears in a, a rib cage perhaps the goldfish represents the glitter of a court and yet also the fishbowl of existence at court Ooh. but i'm really just grasping at straws here
0: <laughs> <laughs> it yes it also i was gonna say it also might represent something that is spoilery because it's not in this issue so let me just keep moving on um all right so I would like to talk a little bit about the interior art as well and specifically for me the thing that jumped out at me was Azazel's design. Is it Azazel? Am I pronouncing it mm-hmm. right? I'm yeah. always I always I always pronounce it wrong, so I apologize. Um where he looks to be this like torn in space and time. He's just like space and stars and eyes and teeth. Um and it is phenomenal demon design I stared at it I looked at all the different panels with it in it it's so incredibly beautiful how in the world 15 eyes and 12 mouths end up being so expressive of of the wash of emotions going through Azazel like I'm astounded by the whole thing I think it's amazing to me, this really is a
1: place where I I get the feeling that Neil's tapping into actual dream imagery as opposed to yeah. you know do, doing research. And I think Azazel, as a god, is is often identified with the the goat that that sacrificial goat that was you mm-hmm. know. And there's the goat for Azazel that gets sent out into the wilderness, and you can only hope that the goat kind of did okay because goats are adapted to the desert, but. Um, mm-hmm. But this actually reminds me of a childhood dream I had. And I've never asked Neil if he had anything like this. So I had a dream where I was a kid and I'm in back of a car and I'm looking up at the roof, which is a fabric roof, and there's a rip in it. And I stick my head in the rip and I start to float up into this like twilight zone black with lots of stars. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, it was both sort of, Frightening and exhilarating. So I'm wondering yeah. if that whole tear in the fabric of reality is is a dream image for Neil. Wow, well, I don't oh, know. I'll interesting. To find that out. But um, yeah, no, I I love that. You know, one of the ways that you don't have to be as bound by reality in in comic books is, you know, take classic Star Trek before there was CGI. And, yeah. and most of the things, you know, it's a box with a rainbow coming yeah. out of it. Or it's, you know, a person with a prosthetic forehead or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And this, you know, one of the classic things about comics is you do have an unlimited special effects budget. And so yes. it's, it's wonderful that that was something that could happen. And now I'm really hoping that, you know, the it'll be fascinating to see how that gets brought to
0: life in the Netflix series. Yeah. I mean, and we've got, you know, demon design is interesting. <laughs> demon um, design. Be- That's like a great ad. Like, ooh, demon. No, There's so much design going into these demons. I mean, we've got Corazon with his uh, two mouths, which I think is fascinating when he and Merkin start making out. I'm like, wow, interesting. And, like, and you in just have all- thinking about all the options, yeah. And
1: and in all the sexy time, you know, I, I was a big... Uh, Laurel K. Hamilton fan back in the beginning mm-hmm. of that series. Yeah. I don't remember any guy with two or more mouths, but you know, I'm. I, that would have been
0: interesting. There are interesting ways that you can design these demons. You know, yes. uh, the way that the mother of spiders is designed is really interesting with that, like, you know, line of eyes going down her face. It's it's just really fascinating. It's the kind of thing like visually, like myself as a writer, I don't know that I would ever think that far outside of the box. And let's not forget, we actually have a cardboard box that is also a sentient character in this. I mean, my God, I love that creativity. Yes, and I
1: I think that has, uh, I don't remember if Neil had cats at that point, but it seems to me Mm -hmm. that the Princess of Chaos was probably inspired by his own uh, older daughter who would have been uh, probably around four or five at that time. (laughs)
0: Which is a very chaotic time for young children. Very yeah, chaotic time, definitely. Um, so I love all of that design. I think it's fascinating, and I do love too that it does have a very like when we get to Azazel that it does have a very dreamlike imagery. It feels, you know, here is this this demon, and they feel like they belong in the dreaming. You know, they feel like that's the kind of, of being that they are. Um, so I absolutely love that. And then, you know, there's this one thing, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a little more detail later when we talk in, about the story. But this moment where <laughs> Dream is just sitting there with this red balloon that the Princess of Chaos gave him. And he's trying to figure everything out. And he sits there with Matthew And Matthew the Raven just flies off with that red balloon. And the red balloon, I find to be such an incredibly, like, iconic sort of image anyway. And I don't know if that's a post-Banksy thing or what the deal is with that, but it feels very meaningful.
1: Well, I don't know if kids watch it, but of my generation, um, Mm -hmm. we all watched a movie called The Red Balloon. And there's this Mm -hmm, little boy who's being bullied, and then he gets a red balloon and should I give away the and red he balloon story? It. I and, just, and yeah, the red balloon is like his friend, and it bounces along. It becomes very anthropomorphic to him, and sort mm-hmm. of in, involved with him. This is back when we still had helium, uh, by the way, which I think yes. we're almost out of. Anyway, yeah. and then some kids bully him, and they burst the balloon. At which point, mm-hmm. balloons from all over. Like hearing the, that one of theirs, the the fam- red balloon has fallen, all come together and go to the little boy, and they lift him up and he soars, which is supposed to be a happy ending, but that gave me nightmares.
0: Yeah, it it was a little weird. Now that you're talking about it, I'm remembering that, and I think that's the first like iconic red balloon. And then of course, you know, in the the 80s, what was it, 99 red balloons, 99 uh, the, the pop left song. balloon. <laughs> right. So, uh, so I think that there is, you know, like a very strong cultural association with the red balloon. And then there is is dream just sunk in his own misery. And here comes Matthew, you know, and Matthew just takes the balloon. What's up, and then, boss? <laughs> beautiful image. And again, now I've got another tattoo that I want. Just Matthew floating away with this balloon in his beak is so beautiful. And I love that image so much. And I cannot even explain all the ways in which I love it. I just love it. Well, you know, it's interesting because
1: the script says something like, and Matthew has about as much need for this balloon or use for this balloon as Morpheus has for the key. This is not something he thinks he wants. But I think that in that image, you get the feeling that this, this guy who's become a raven is rediscovering joy in existence, which really hadn't Mm -hmm. been a part of his life. And so I think that's what it is that he, you know, he's getting a real second chance. And so there's something infinitely hopeful about the raven with the red balloon It
0: really is and here we have dream is so weighted down like like this key feels like the ring in lord of the rings right it feels like you know when frodo drops it and it slams to the floor this tiny little ring doesn't bounce it's just boom because there's so much weight in it and i feel like that's how the key feels you know for dream there's so much weight and then there's this lightness that he has been given And he passes it off to Matthew without a thought. Just take it. I don't care, you know, because he is so focused on the heaviness. And then Matthew is able to float away with this lightness. And I love that moment, too, where Matthew is mid-sentence. What the hell am I going to do with a balloon? And before he can even finish the sentence, he's got it in his beak and he's flying away. Because what you do with the balloon is exist with the balloon, is just love the balloon. The fact that it exists for the moment um, is what you do with the balloon. Um, So I, I loved that image. I loved that lightness and versus the heaviness and getting that across in, um, in a visual medium, you know, um, is, is a little bit of a challenge, but I felt like they did that really well. And it was just such a beautiful, it was a beautiful moment of breath, you know, like there's all of this stuff and dream has got, everybody is coming at him every minute, every minute. And then we just have this one page of breath, you know, with the balloon and I love it. So much! It is honestly one of my favorite things, and I don't even know I am going to become the 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 tattooed lady. There's so much art from this series that I just want to get a tattoo of, um, especially that moment with the lightness of the balloon, because that's something I always want to be reminded of: is that there is joy and there is lightness. You know, it's just yeah, I Absolute. love it so this. Much. Is
1: this is why I never got a tattoo? That working in comics and not just on you the Sandman, choose. but on you know the other wonderful issues, so many artists, so many amazing things. And I just thought I would, you know, there was between having no tattoos or I'd become the illustrated woman. There was just no middle ground. I'm,
0: I'm thinking about becoming the illustrated woman. I don't believe that it's ever too late in life to do crazy shit. So, uh, so I'm going to, yeah, figure that out at some point. But tell me, assistant editor, how was this experience for you? Tell me about it. I'm so excited to hear, like you've been telling us the behind the scenes generally, you know, for this, but this is something that's actually part of your experience. Well, you
1: know, it's interesting. I was reading some, uh, I think it was an article in the New York Times on nostalgia and collecting Mm -hmm. things and how, you know, there was a time when people browsed in stores instead of online and, and how this time was lost. And it made me think that I should just mention some things that I take for granted, but are so different probably from the work experience that people have today, even even at DC Comics, because uh, DC Comics at this point was, well, first of all, still in New York City, and it was at 666 Fifth Avenue. That was the first Mm -hmm. location where I worked. It moved twice. Mm -hmm. Uh, I shared an office with Tom Pyre, and Mm -hmm. I would get called in and out of Karen Berger's office. So I was just trying to give a quick, this is, these are my early days. I was probably a first dressed like I had a job. I I probably got, I started dressing, you know, kind of business casual, maybe a blazer over a t-shirt and, you know, nice Mm -hmm. jeans. It was never a really formal job. Then I got Mm -hmm. really scruffy for a while. And then I realized, (laughs) oh, I should probably dress a little more professionally than this. Um. (laughs) So this is this is still me trying to make a good impression. Um, my job involved, let's see, reading the scripts, faxing. Mm-hmm. Faxing. Uh, the, oh, my the, God, faxing. What a great technology. Faxing the scripts uh-huh. to the penciler, getting the penciled boards in and comparing them to the script. Uh, mm-hmm. I would send the boards. There were these big 11 by 17 boards out to be lettered. And mm-hmm. so the Xeroxes would be full size for those. And then I would make a lettering guide with the script and we would balloon them, which means you figure out on the Xeroxes the balloon placement. And, mm-hmm. you know, a balloon should not um, interrupt people's eye contact. Oh. Mm-hmm. Sorry. You shouldn't right. interrupt. I just knocked. I'm so excited. I'm talking with my hands. So I'm like like bopping around, <laughs> scraping things here. Um, so you, you don't want to interrupt eye contact. You don't want to knock off feet. And so there's a, a little rule for where you put the, the balloons. Mm-hmm. I would make a smaller copy for the colorist who would actually paint it like a coloring book and then supply the codes for the separators. I would make a copy of the lettered boards to show the copy editor, Arlene Lowe, who was notoriously exacting. She was terrific. But you did not want to disturb her or ask unnecessary questions. She hated it. You you could come in. You'd slip something under the door. You you were not supposed to knock, as I recall. Um, And I did all this Running around, so down to production, uh, across to the Xerox room, I'd go to the mailroom because everything was getting FedExed. I had mm-hmm. to go to other editors offices on other floors if you know, I wanted to use an artist or a character that they were in using they were in charge of. Um, at the Xerox machine, so much of my day was at the Xerox machine. There would be other assistant editors because they needed to do the xeroxing. So we'd all be, oh. and the FedEx uh, guys would need to be doing, you know, their own xeroxing. So we'd all be jockeying mm. for position, um, <laughs> and you know, and we'd be chatting. I think I was the only female assistant editor at this time. Wow. Uh, on Fridays. Famous artists that I remembered from my childhood, from Mad and other, you know, uh, oh, and for comics, they would just wander in on a Friday. It would always be really difficult to get your work done on a Friday because people would <laughs> come in if they were visiting mm-hmm. from England or, or, you know, they'd want to be taken out for drinks. And oh, yeah, we went out for drinks just about every freaking day. We went out at the end of the day to, uh-huh. to an Irish pub called the Irish pub. And, it, you know, it smelled like stewed cabbage and beer. And, mm-hmm. we, you know, we would kibitz about the day. And I was thinking,
0: I don't think people have workplaces like this anymore. Yeah, really? Probably not, you know? I mean, that was kind of very specific to its time. But what a wonderful picture you paint of what this existence was like and what this process was. That's so cool.
1: It was very hands-on. And, um, oh, I should also mention, I used to almost always go out and get lunch and bring it back for Karen and for me. Mm-hmm. And we had very similar tastes. I learned... I. I like, I could always figure out what Karen wanted to eat. And mm-hmm. um, when we'll, so when she hired me, she was pregnant. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I was being trained to, um, you know, to take over. But we thought we had more time than we actually had. So when we get to the point, I, I'll, I'll mention a whole story that involves Karen and Neil, pregnancy and lunch. So
0: you'll have to remind <laughs> me when we get there. I think Karen told that story in the interview that we did with her. So I think she'd yeah. tell you a little bit about that experience, but yes, we will definitely. I, talk I have about to that tell it to that issue From my perspective
1: because oh, I'm very <laughs> excited for
0: that. You know, I think all right, so yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: I, I was just saying, I think like, like all these stories, it gains from having the multiple
0: POV. Uh, there's nothing that does not benefit from a whole Rashomon approach, I think. So absolutely, I can't wait to hear your side of that story. Um, But let's go ahead and get into the story here in chapter five. Um, This looks like the first half of a two-parter. We've got chapter five, then we'll have chapter six next, and then we'll have an epilogue. I kind of think, you know, I don't feel that the prologue and the epilogue are actual prologues and epilogues. It all feels like one smooth story to me, but that is really pedantic nonsense and who cares and if Neil wants to call it a prologue and an epilogue then Neil gets to say what it is but I think that we've got a smooth running story here but this is definitely a serial um thing we had a complete episode last week you know at Hogwarts and hell um and and now we're going into this like last run of this story of what does dream do? you know with this this onerous you know possession that he has come into. So um so I really really like the way that the story is moving. Um it was so much fun to kind of go through this process with uh with dream and here we have all of these entities coming in and it does it kind of gives me a sense of American gods a little bit, um, which is, of course, Neil's novel that has all of these gods from all of these different, you know, cultures sort of all coming together, you know, in in the same world, which was really, really fun to see in this issue. Um, You know, Odin wants hell to evade Ragnarok um, and it's going to trade, you know, the Golden Age Sandman, which I guess is Wesley Dodd, right? Uh, I think Golden Age was yeah. Wesley Dodd, or was it? Yeah, it wasn't Hector Hall. I'm pretty sure the Golden Age was Wesley Dodd. And I think, I think you're Hall right. might have been yes, there somewhere. Yes, I think it's Wesley but.
1: Dodd. And then there was um, Sandman Mystery Theater, which was a, a Vertigo comic that, that yeah. played with them.
0: But I like that, you know, here we are kind of bringing that continuity together, that the that Sandman is a different Sandman, but it kind of has a piece of Morpheus in it. And that's sort of an interesting idea. Also that, you know, the Sandman, the Golden Age Sandman exists within this, this like Ragnarok, you know, um, preparatory theater that that Odin has created, you know. Um, so I think that that is a really interesting, you know, parallel universe idea, which is really fun. Um, we've got Jemmy, the Princess of Chaos, who just threatens him because why the hell not? Maybe it'll work. Um, she gives him that red balloon, of course, which I absolutely love. Um, the letters from the cardboard box that is Lord Kilderkin of Order. I love this so much. I don't know why there is something about, I think that like I I respond very well to typography. And of course, comic books are all about the the ways the letters are themselves formed are an expression of themselves, you know. And so the way that we have all of these letters that that Dream just keeps reaching into this cardboard box and pulling out a note, and then there's another note. Um, It's just, it's so cool. And then, you know, he's like, I've been collecting the dream essences of the newly dead. And Dream's response is like, you've been collecting something I would have collected myself had I need for it. I am no collector forever treasuring and tabulating that which has no further use. I cannot tell you how valuable it was to read that during a moving process where I am deciding what I'm going to keep and what I'm going to throw away, you know? Um, and so there's something about that. Like, does it have use? You know, what is the value? You look at a lot of things, especially stuff that your kids made, and you're like, oh, they made, you know, they don't care. They left it behind. They told me to throw it away. But I'm like, oh, you know. So going through that process, I just felt like very much that particular line spoke to me very nicely, specifically at this time in in my life. Um, we've got Susano no Makito uh, assembling uh, with other forgotten gods. And new possible deities. He's like, Marilyn Monroe is ours now. We got King Kong. We got Lady Liberty. I that whole idea that that here he is, and he's just kind of like picking these entities that exist more out of the fame of a thing, the idea of something, like the idea of Marilyn Monroe rather than actual Marilyn Monroe. Like, I don't know. It's such a neat idea. And I sort of want to spend an entire I don't know, uh, series just living in that universe where we're collecting all of these, these you know, these really deeply impressioned within the, the public psyche, you know, uh, characters. Bast, of course, comes in. It's like, I know where your brother is. And Dream is like, I if, you know, I don't care. <laughs> like, that's his business, not mine. Um, and then, of course, the final gut punch is Azazel, who comes in and says, I've got Nada and Coruscant here for you. I'm going to hand over the guy you hate, the demon who, you know, tried to keep you from your helm. And, uh, you know, I've got Nada, the woman that you love. And when you look at that, you think, well, when it comes to a hand of cards, I believe Azazel's got it down. You know, like who's going to beat that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, and of course, that's the one you want to end with. But clearly yeah. there's something with, with all of these. And it's it's interesting. We are at a moment in time right now where there has been mm-hmm. all of this high level diplomatic activity, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a much more serious sphere, because obviously yeah. there's a, a war that's going on now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was thinking about, you know, intelligence and you know, people giving messages and what you reveal and what you conceal. And Mm -hmm. so even though this is a a, a fantasy story, there are elements in it that resonate with me about the idea Mm -hmm. that when you have something valuable, you are going to have all of these competing interests and you are going to have this incredible problem that whoever you choose, you are going to create um, some... A host of other pissed off people so you know that that key is just
0: the worst thing in the world to possess Mm -hmm. it is i mean it's a lot of weight and yeah you're right no matter what he does there's no solution here where everybody goes away happy you know there's nothing to be done and so to see him You know, and I especially love this too, where he's going through and he's meeting with everybody and they're all like, I really want to meet with you privately. And he's like, I will send you a flame. The flame will lead you to me. Follow the flame. Don't get lost in the dreaming. You know, all this stuff. It is, it does have this sense of almost the drudgery of diplomacy. You know, Um, and there is a very diplomatic feel to it is that you've got like all of these people from all of these different places. All of them want the same thing. They're all hanging out and having dinner. You know, Thor, of course, is getting drunk off his ass and being incredibly inappropriate with Bast, you know, Um, so there's all of that stuff. Um, I just find it to be like, uh, you think about like the drudgery of diplomacy, like, you know, that and also one of those things, and I remember this the first time I think I ever heard this about laws is like in the West Wing, right? You know, these you don't want to see how sausage is made and you don't want to see how laws are made, right? And so in the midst of all of this, we have a sideshow with Cain and Abel kind of doing their horror host thing, you know? Um, And we find out that uh, Mr. Shouty is sausages, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so Princess
1: Jemmy, uh, is calling Cain. Uh, no, sorry, calling Abel, Mister Shouty, and mm-hmm. um, and there's this wonderful image of Cain sort of standing there after doing this magic act of cutting Abel in half, and he's mm-hmm. holding, he's just got this sausages draped over his shoulders. I think Kelly is doing a bit of an homage there to a mm-hmm. classic Bernie Wrightson style panel from from older House of Mysteries, mm-hmm. and it. I mean, for me, as I started work on on this, you know, issue, mm-hmm. I knew House of Mystery. Those were the comics I loved the best. You know, yeah. that particular campy horror, that was my jam. And so to have that nestled in here with something that clearly was doing something, um, it it had lots of layers to it but the, the fact mm. that that was a layer delighted me and you know you pointed out that lovely uh the the Susano ono mikoto i'm am mm-hmm. i saying that
0: right sorry if i i i don't know we probably are saying it wrong but it's so difficult when you only read something i always mispronounce words that i've only read and not heard so yeah Well,
1: the, the japanese thunder god um mm-hmm. and uh so when he talks about you know that that they have added new gods like Marilyn Monroe and King Kong and Lady Liberty, as you you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, that is going to get explored further in American gods. You can see ideas that Mm -hmm. are just so compelling. And I talk about them a little later, but you've also got these mortal dreamers who are clearly Mm -hmm. been drafted in their dreams to serve the dinner. Maybe other dreamers are also preparing these meals and Mm -hmm. yet you know, Neil creates this little side story, too, where the the yeah. G- what the at least the male dreamer seems to be sort of uh, romantically interested in the female dreamer and possibly mm-hmm. both. I always wanted to know their their story, but I, I'm not sure we ever got it.
0: It's you know, there's rich layers of story going on here. And the thing is that there's so much happening. And here are these threads that could be stories of themselves, you know, and and you always think about that, that like, no matter what, like you in your life is always the main story. You're always the protagonist of your own story, you know, but everybody else is also the protagonist of their own stories. And all of our stories are interacting with each other. And that's how it happens, you know, here. And I just think it is almost like an embarrassment of riches. There's just so much going on um, here uh and it feels very rich it feels very filled out you know and there's so many things like the 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 little glass world of the the proto ragnarok that has the golden age sandman and that's the parallel universe in which the golden age sandman lives and he has part of morpheus's soul and what does that mean and all of it is so interesting and it's also like got a little golden age hawkman in the back
1: yeah. and neil thought of all of this i mean he really if you all of this is in the script. It's really mm. amazing how thoroughly he explored and
0: exploited every opportunity. It's incredibly layered. It's so cool. Um, you know, and as we talk about this stuff, I think we can go a little bit into Lucian's library, since we've got you behind the scenes to kind of tell us a little bit about what was going on. Uh, you have some notes here about the Merkin.
1: About the Merkin,
0: so page eleven, panel
1: three. The script says that, as we learned in the previous issue, her womb mm-hmm. spawns spiders, and Neil makes it clear they're coming out of her. Am I allowed to say the technical term, the birth canal? They're coming out of the yes. birth canal. You can say you can say vagina. There's nothing wrong <laughs> with they're saying c- vagina. They're coming out of her vagine, as Borat <laughs> would say, and um and and Neil suggested, you know, just to to suggest this, not to show it, but to suggest it by the angle of the spiders scuttling down her thigh. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one of my first very clear memories. There was a (laughs) web and a spider right between her legs. And I still remember, like it's yesterday, Karen saying, oh no, that is not going to fly. We didn't yet even have a mature reader's uh, Uh. uh, thing on it. It's like, no, 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 no. That has to be taken out. And Mm -hmm. now, this is another memory. So, in the script originally Merkin was described as wearing a ball gown and as I recall mm-hmm. last issue she was Nakes's right she was mm-hmm. uh, but in that scene suddenly you'll see there are garters and some undies added. So I think <laughs> and in originally in the script there were garters and undies I think that may I can't remember if mm-hmm. Karen, my memory okay guys this is 30 years you try and remember stuff mm-hmm. after 30 years yeah. but my memory is that maybe that got added back in yeah. like add mm-hmm. some clothes please um mm-hmm. and uh and so that that was one of my early memories about trying to find that that sweet spot between you know what we could get away with in terms of explicit mm-hmm. uh stuff and and what we couldn't and um so yeah that was that's an actual editing memory another <laughs> one is i didn't realize that the clerican was a kind of fairy it was many because as i said i was trying mm-hmm. to do research i think i've told the story already that i went to like a paperback exchange asking for more mythological books mm-hmm. but it was many years i think later that i found out that the Clurican is like a leprechaun. They are the fairies that are associated with always being drunk. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's, it's Neil's invention that he looks like the young Peter O'Toole. Um, But, uh, but that aspect is actually drawing on mythology. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, by the way, uh, I never know. I, in my head, I still say Nuala. I think it's Nula. I always stutter over I'm this. I'm not
0: certain. I remember, you know, in the audible version, it sounded different from what I had read it as, but I cannot remember how it was supposed to be pronounced. I even
1: looked it up and it's like, Is here's it how you pronounce Nuala. Nuala. Is and it, it, Nuala? it was like, I don't maybe know. it's it- Nuala. Nuala. But I, I can't say Maybe, Nuala. No. So anyway, to anyone sorry. listening who has this name or loves someone with this name, I apologize.
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> I clearly have some kind of a blockage. It is beautiful in all of its incarnations. So it, yes.
1: it is, except probably mm-hmm. when I'm butchering it. But, <laughs> you know, so she looks like the Pamela Anderson of fairies here. Mm-hmm. Um, but she ends up becoming one of my favorite characters of the cast regulars. We'll see a, yeah. a, an interesting development with her. In mm-hmm. the script, um, there is a moment where Chlorican kind of says something like, you know, thank you, Syrah, I'm gonna, to, to Morpheus, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go do something else. I see it in the script, but I know that that's a mistake. In the lettered version, it becomes sire in the comic that mm-hmm. we see. Now, I think that this, I... Uh, Neil had the flu when he was writing this. So he may have been a little loopy and it mm-hmm. was on deadline. I don't know why it would, uh, but Syrah is not a respectful way. So I think that may have been just like a misspelling or whatever. Mm-hmm. I misunderstood it. And I think later used Syrah in something I was writing in Destiny. And uh, Neil corrected me and said, "Oh, Syrah is not what you say when you don't want to piss someone off.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, so I have no idea about any of that. So
1: if you're going to go to your reenacting of medieval stuff, don't sarah mm-hmm. anyone unless you uh, don't like them. But, um, yeah, so that's those are the key things that I remember right now from behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Um yeah, I'll probably finish recording this and I'll suddenly remember something else. The goldfish. <laughs> right. I'll remember the goldfish.
0: You can stuff it into to next time to that script. It'll be fine. Nobody will care. Um, I'm curious, though, like how how what was the cycle and and how was there a breath in between or did you finish one issue and go directly into the next one? Did you overlap? Were you working on two different issues at once? How, was, how did that go? Three. Mm-hmm.
1: Three, Three. you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it was I think this is my memory. Again, I think it was like three. So there would be a script for one that needed Mm -hmm. to be sent off while something else was coming through uh, that was being sent and lettered and something else was being Mm -hmm. done in production. So I think we usually made sure with those fill in issues like the Dead Boys that we were, you know, that, that we were ahead of time enough. And of course, The Sandman wasn't the only comic I was working on. Sure, I don't yeah. want to give the, the impression, you know, so uh, Books of Magic was coming out at the same time, Shade the Changing Man. I was probably working. I think there was a Brian Talbot um, weird rock and roll thing. I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. who did that. Um, yeah, so... I, I I would have to ask Karen again how many issues we were working
0: on with things, but we were working That's on a bunch. Neat. Yeah. Did they come out every week when they were coming out? So, like a, a series of these is like eight issues, right? So, were those weekly? Were those monthly? How did those come out? Monthly. They were monthly. Monthly. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. also did
1: the letter columns. Uh, I, I think Tom was. Initially, he was still doing the letter column, I think, until I got up to speed. And then I mm-hmm. took over the letter column. I'm going to see I, I wish I could find my original floppy so I could read us some of the the letter columns. But one of my uh, jobs yeah. was mm-hmm. always to find out what the next issue was going to be. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah. um, th- I think that was really one of the ways that Neil and
0: I started talking. Yeah. Oh, how neat. God, it's just, it's so cool. I love it. Um, all right. So here's the thing. Uh, talking about the Audible, right? Because we both have the Audible version, which is going to run out, I think. and I don't think at the end of Season of Miss. I think it's maybe Game of You that it finishes and then we, uh, and then the Audible will run out and we'll have to wait for the next one before we have it again. Um, but listening to the Audible is uh, so interesting and it does kind of add a little bit more to, um, to the experience of you know reading the comic you sort of get a little more context and again sometimes uh neil will actually read from the script things that you know we didn't see in the comic but that were part of the scripting for it so that's always neat um but one of the things that confused me and i don't know that you can answer this or anybody out there can answer this i'm not really sure what this is about Thor is Scottish. Odin, Thor, Loki, they're all Scottish. Now I get that David Tennant, I believe, played Loki in the Audible version and David Tennant is Scottish. So maybe they decided to make them all Scottish because why would you not have, why would you have David Tennant do anything other than his natural accent? He's amazing. I love him so much. Um, But yeah, do you have, uh, Norse gods would not, uh, that would sound Scandinavian, right? I mean, not Scottish. I, that
1: seems strange to me. I don't know. I, um, you know, all I can say is I, I have sometimes trouble sleeping, and I've been lately listening to Richard Armitage reading mm-hmm. the BBC Robin Hood that I loved, you know, fif- <gasps> oh fifteen years ago. And yeah. and and then I think there's something a little strange about hearing Guy of Gisborne, you know, <laughs> read like enthusiastically about his enemy Robin. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just go with it. I just go
0: with it. In fact, I think everyone
1: should sound either Scottish or like Richard Armitage.
0: I, you know, I have no objection to that. I love accents. Accents, honestly, like every accent to me, I absolutely love. I love hearing people speak in a language I can't understand because then you just hear the, the phonemes and it's just like, it's so incredibly beautiful. I love all that stuff. You realize so for that me, we... You realize that we have accents. I mean, to other people, like people are listening exactly. to us. Exactly, exactly. And we may we, not but have but nice accents. accents. Are terrible. I know. Like, I, okay, everybody else's—the way everybody else speaks—is beautiful to me. <laughs> the way that I speak is not. Um, but that's just kind of how I am. I just love listening to people who who say things in different ways from the way that I say them. Um, but uh, but yeah, like I mean, I love it. Like I have no objection. But I just thought it was so. I thought it was such an interesting choice, and I don't know why that would have been the choice. But it was very, very cool, and it was really fun to listen to. And I definitely, again, once again, recommend the Audible version. If you love Sandman, that is going to bring a whole different layer to your enjoyment. Maybe you and I should start doing more of this in a Scottish accent. I am terrible at accents. I can't even tell you. Uh, I'm The worst. And me doing an accent would be offensive to everybody involved. So I just don't think that I should ever, ever, ever do an accent that is not from New York State. New York State, I can do the various accents that are like regional to where I grew up, but no. Oh, no, that's not <laughs> <laughs> the engine so gonna take it <laughs> you're good you can you can do it you're i can Nexus. only do i, I can only nuts. do
1: scotty from you know from <laughs> the originals
0: <laughs> the engine cannot take it that's i'm sorry but i had to do that all right i we're, we're love on. it we are right here Alisa. <laughs> what is your favorite page here Oh, what
1: is my favorite page? I think it has to be Thor affronting the Lady Bast by calling her pussyhead. <laughs> I, I remember reading that and I just mm-hmm. loved it. It was a revelation to me that we could make a character that crass. And I yes. just, you know, and I, and I also, I think it was nice that Neil was sort of calling out, you know, uh, clearly... The script was not approving of of Thor's uh, behavior <laughs> right. to to yes. Bast, but Pussyhead was funny because she kind of you
0: know is a Pussyhead. Yes. <laughs> 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 well, and and the thing is, is that for the moment you're like, hey, wait a uh, uh, fair enough, you know, because. Like what do you what are you gonna say? Um I yeah, I love that. Uh, Thor has never been one of my favorite characters. Um anybody who listened to my uh uh MCU Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, uh, listen up a holes will know how much I don't really care for Thor. Um until he gets, you know properly traumatized. And then I get interested. Um, but this version of Thor was fun. I, I love Loki. Loki is a trickster hero, Um, is always fun. The thing that I love about Loki is that, of course, the first thing he does is sit and watch, right? Because every trickster has to sit there and get the information about how they're going to appropriately manipulate everyone. And I love that that detail is included in here because it just feels... Menacing. It feels like something, you know, something's going to drop, but there's so much happening that you take your eye off Loki. And that's of course when his sleight of hand will, uh, will start to play. Um, so I thought that that was really great. And, and seeing, you know, Loki and Thor and Odin one eye and the way that they all interact together um, is, is really kind of fun. I've been watching a lot of Frasier lately, and I have to say, I've been, I've been kind of having a Martin Frasier and, um, and Niles uh, version in my head of of all of these characters um i gotta say my favorite page of course i think you know i've talked about it enough is dream sitting there uh, you know just brooding with that red balloon and then matthew what am i gonna do with that boom gone with the balloon it's so adorable and i absolutely love that
1: i love that too and i loved matthew saying that he got to hang out with odin's ravens Hunan yeah. and munin the uh, thought and memory right
0: I know. How wonderful is that? I think that's so cool. All right. What's your favorite part?
1: Uh, my favorite part is the dream servants. I always wanted to hear the rest
0: of that story. That's pretty cool. And it's so nice to have that just moving along in the background, you know. And again, you talk about the Rashomon of it all. That would be a really fun story to have seen. This whole series of events exactly, you know, but playing out from that perspective would have been really interesting. Um, I love Azazel. Offering nada, you know, in what appears to be an offer, Dream can't refuse. I love that, you know, we have all of these uh, people coming to Dream with all of these offers and all of these threats and all of these bribes. And then Azazel just lays down the nada card. And, uh, and here we are back where we started, which was you didn't do right. You got to save Nada. And that was his goal throughout the whole time. And here he is finally being presented with the answer to his goal, right, with the way to achieve the goal that he set out this story to achieve. And what is he going to do? You know, it seems like such a simple answer. And yet uh, I think we're going to discover that it's not as simple as it seems
1: yeah and you know the fact that the demons betray each other uh is probably does not bode entirely well for that negotiation (laughs) i don't think that it does
0: All right, if you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments and questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode
1: of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level these people are the reason why endless is coming to you free and ad free right now so thank you to abby alice christina erica jane kevin Kristen, michael rose sarah shelly and stephania and this week's special message for our power
0: producers wait in your room i will send a flame to guide you to me and we can talk to find out how you too can support Chiprish Media, visit Patreon.com/Chiprish. Other ways to show your support: write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or offer Morpheus nothing and threaten him instead. This episode of Endless was edited
1: by Chiprish Content Editor Jack Cram. Jack, see you tomorrow, Mister Dreamy. We will be back next time with Season of Mists, Chapter Six, Issue Twenty-Seven of the Sandman series. Until then. I suggest you leave this room at this time. It will cease to exist shortly.